company Christmas parties. What do you think when you hear that? They have a little bit of a dubious reputation. Now, your experiences may have been perfectly pleasant and tame. Uh, you may dread company Christmas parties for all the reasons that we know, even without saying. Uh, there have even been movies made about how Christmas parties are to be avoided at all costs, and yet <laughs> we haven't learned our lesson. This year, I had to attend a company Christmas party. On the way, my brother happened to call me in the car, and when I answered the phone, he must have heard something in my voice, and he said, What's wrong with you, Scrooge? And I told him I was on my way to my own personal hell, a company Christmas party. This party in particular was weird because uh, the powers that be decided it would be a good idea to go to iFly in Beaverton. Do you know what iFly is? iFly is a terrible place. <laughs> We were celebrating Christmas by putting on germ-infested skydiving suits and helmets and trying to float in midair while some young man who acts like, ooh, this is all easy, stands beside you and tries to keep you, and when I say you, I mean me, from flopping around and pulling every muscle in my back. Does it sound fun? The answer is no. The answer is no, it does not sound fun. It's not fun, not in the least. I suppose it was difficult for me to hide my displeasure with this quote-unquote party. Um, I made sure I didn't hurt anybody's feelings, you know, I don't want to be the curmudgeon in the group most of the time. Um, but my joking around about my old back and all the things that we could be doing at that time, I got the point across. We were laughing about it though. After it was over, the three team members who didn't participate, still a little bitter about that, watched me limp toward them, and uh, as I continued to complain, they said, actually, Jason, you weren't that bad. Out of the nine, you ranked in our top three, believe it or not. And I, and I said, that is ridiculous. No way I was better than so-and-so. And one of them said, Maybe it's just that you lowered our expectations so much, we were surprised you weren't an absolute disaster. Merry Christmas. By the way, I forgot to bring it, but I got a certificate from iFly. I'll bring it for you next week. I know you want to see that. It tells you on there everything that I accomplished, which included a 360 turn in midair. Just throwing that out there. Lower your expectations. You weren't a disaster. I mean, maybe that's not a bad way to live. Whatever it is we face, whether it comes to work, or relationships, or politics, or I fly, just keep respect. Don't get too excited about it. Lower your expectations. The church does that sometimes. Sometimes we can be guilty of this. Sort of like today, the last after the last Sunday of Advent, after the Christmas Eve services, now we have the Sunday where virtually no senior or teaching pastor in America is preaching. Right? 
We give it to the student ministry pastor or some poor elder who rarely preaches um, because it's the Sunday after Christmas Eve. And we sort of lean into life that way. We anticipate for weeks in the month of December, Christmas Eve comes, we sing Silent Night, we gather around the fire in our homes, Christmas Day arrives, the baby arrives, and then it's gone, just like that. And this is sort of what we accept as the normal rhythm in life. We keep perspective about it all. Don't get too emotional. Life isn't a New Year's Eve party. Let's be realistic. Lower your expectations, people. Whatever good is going on right now, there is bad right around the corner. Leave it to people like us to tell the beaming, jubilant mother of a young child, hey, well, this is great and all. Just wait till they grow up and that boy starts running around. Exhaustion will overtake you. And then they become teenagers and they stop talking to you for several years. Good luck with that. What is it about joy that is so difficult for us to deal with? Seems as though we've convinced ourselves that the essence of life is so hard that there's no reason to give into real, exuberant joy, at least not for very long. Lower your expectations about everything. Now, it would make sense to live that way if we really do live under the cover of the emptiness and meaninglessness of life. If life really is going nowhere except the grave, and if we are ultimately insignificant, lucky, evolutionary mud, then it makes sense that we see and feel the world as hostile and we see ourselves as insignificant. And if we really are that way, if the world really is completely dark, if we really are insignificant, well, I can see someone struggling with joy, not getting too excited because it's all going to go south one day anyway. And there's a certain truth to that about the world. Richard prayed earlier about the realities that we've experienced in 2023. We don't have to look very hard to see the hostility toward the other and at the same time to see this insatiable drive to be seen and known as val and valued as significant human beings, right? We see that all the time. Instagram and TikTok play host to both of those, to the hostility of the world and to the incessant self-display. Both efforts to escape the cloud of meaninglessness that hangs over life for most people. And if that's how someone operates in this world, you know what can happen? For that person who sees the world in that way, even the smallest of troubles can cause a huge emotional weight to rest on their backs. 
come to believe that that's the way life really is. It's dark, it's joyless, it's broken. So when a burden comes our way, that's our default drive. That's where we slide. We slide straight into darkness. Well, here it is. And we just get overwhelmed. With even the smallest of burdens. But for the Christian, there is a different rhythm. There is a different movement in life. Life moves in the opposite direction for the Christian. When the burden comes, the Christian is pushed toward the light. When the burden comes for the non-Christian, for the one who is not living into this reality, the push is toward darkness. And Paul directs our attention to that in our reading from the letter to the Galatians. This different reality. And if we can capture this reality and we can live into it, it will change our lives. And it will change the lives of the people around us. So, Henry Nouwen, I, I don't know what you think about Henry Nouwen. People have mixed feelings. He has a lot of wonderful thoughts around this theme. And I'm borrowing some of them, and I thought as I continued to write the sermon that just sharing some of the things he has said might be helpful. Here's one to get us started. The Father calls you the Beloved. We constantly go back to the truth of who we are and claim it for ourselves. I'm not what I do. I'm not what people say about me. I'm not, did you hear that, young people? I'm not what people say about me. That is not my identity. I'm not what I have. My spiritual identity is not rooted in the world, the things the world gives me. My life is rooted in my spiritual identity. Whatever we do, we have to go back regularly to the place of core identity. End quote. Now, Paul calls it being a son. Now, by that, he doesn't mean male, as Jessica noted in the reading, helpfully. As most of you will know, in the ancient world, a son is first in line for the father's inheritance. The eldest son is the heir. Like the story in Genesis of Esau and Jacob, Esau was the eldest of the, and the inheritance, or the birthright, as Genesis calls it, was his. <clears throat> and Jacob swindled him out of that. But Paul doesn't mean son in the exact same sense uh, in terms of male, because, and we know this because in chapter 3, verse 28, which we read, he tells us that when we're baptized into union with Christ, into the family of God, we no longer get our value or our status from those distinctions of ethnicity, of gender, or socioeconomic class. He says, you, you're all one in Christ. There isn't a distinction like that. So when he talks about an heir or a son, when he says the term son, he's not talking about male. When he says the term son, when he, says, when he uses that word, he's talking about heir. And that's why some of the translations say child, to make that 
clear. So what he means is that all those who have faith in Christ and are baptized into his life, and both of those are present in this text, faith and baptism. So all who have faith in Christ and are baptized into his life now are children and heirs to everything that belongs to the Father. Isaac, Jacob, and Esau's father didn't take anything, uh, sorry, Isaac, their father, didn't take anything with him when he died. He left it all. The same will happen to us. We will not take anything with us. We will leave everything behind, material possessions, we will leave some kind of legacy, hopefully one of wisdom, love, etc. But as heirs in God's family, we get everything that belongs to the Father. Everything. And here's the difference between the earthly Father and the heavenly Father. The earthly Father can only give physical possessions, or some sort of legacy. But God gives us His very life. The life of the eternal God. The loving, peace-overflowing, anxiety-free, joy-filled, solid rock life of the Father. Everything that is given from the Father to the Son is now given from the Father and the Son to us, to those of us who by faith have come to Him and entered into union with Him in baptism. And that's our identity. That's who we are in our core. Last week on Christmas Eve, we talked about the miracle of Jesus' arrival on earth as an absolutely otherworldly event something that took place outside the normal means of husband-wife relations. Something that had to come from God to Himself. And one of the readings that we had last week was from St. John's Gospel, chapter 1. I didn't highlight it last week, but here is a critical text, what he says in those first 14 verses. Verse 12 of John 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Sound familiar? Everything that God gives to the Son of God, Jesus, He gives to you. You, like Jesus, are a child of the Father, an heir to His very life. That's why the Scripture refers to, uh, to Jesus as our brother. We stand not only in Him, but with Him before the Father as co-heirs for everything that the Father has. <coughs> and that's our core identity. That's the heart of who we are. Whatever else is true about you in your life, whatever else you believe, whatever other identity markers you take, Democrat, Republican, 
white, black, American, non-American. None of those are core. This is child of the Father. Now, again, he says, I very much believe that the core moment of Jesus' public life was the baptism in the Jordan when Jesus heard the affirmation, you are my beloved on whom my favor rests. That is the core experience of Jesus. He is reminded in a deep, deep way of who he is. The temptations in the desert are temptations to move him away from that spiritual identity. He was tempted to believe he was someone else. You are the one who can turn stone to bread. You are the one who can jump from the temple. You are the one who can make others bow to your prayer. Jesus said, no, no, no. I am the beloved from God. Now one says, I think his whole life is continually claiming that identity in the midst of everything. There are times in which he is praised, times in which he is despised or rejected, but he keeps saying, others will leave me alone, but my father will not leave me alone. I am the beloved son of God. End quote. And for anyone who by faith is baptized into Christ, your identity just like Jesus, is the beloved of God. Do you think that when people mocked Jesus' preaching and tried to attack him for blasphemy, that he gave up on the Father's mission for him? Did he think for a moment that, the, that he had lost hope that the Father was with him? When Jesus lost most of his church members in John 6, after preaching a controversial sermon to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that, that was the only way to eternal life, well, I mean, when you preach sermons like that, you're bound to lose a few, right? Do you think after that, that he slid into depression, convinced the Father wasn't with him, or keeping his promises? Why not? Because his core identity is the beloved Son of God. He's going back to that over and over and over again. And how often do we hear of Jesus slipping away, even during the night, on his own, to spend time with the Father, to be reminded of this mission, who he is and who is with him. Always, over and over and over again, even the night where he was betrayed in Gethsemane. And so if that's who Jesus is with the Father, and he's doing the same thing for us, what about us? The evil one comes to us, and he says, you are the talented one who should have greater status and a higher income. You are the intelligent one who deserves to be heard, and no one's listening to you. You are the one who would make a much better leader or manager than the one you currently have. You are the one who deserves more affirmation because you are a good person. You're better than the other mothers or fathers or students or professors. 
performers or athletes. You're the last person who deserves to lose their job. You're too young to get a diagnosis like that. God keeps giving you a raw deal. And why do they have that house and that income? They're no better than you are, that's for sure. A friend of mine, going through a particularly difficult season of life, with job, income, told me one day, I've been trying all my adult life to figure out God and church, etc., and now I could care less about any of it. And he said, I don't even pray anymore. I'm startled. Something in his trial had squeezed him toward the darkness. The burden was just enough to push him toward that, rather than pushing him toward the light. Richard, you didn't know this when you wrote the prayer, but as you lamented rightfully all of those wrongs of 2023 that we continue to experience, and then you ended your prayer with, though all of this is true, we trust you. That's it. That's it. It's not saying life is rosy, everything's great, and I feel wonderful in spite of all of the darkness. It's which movement are we experiencing? Are we being squeezed toward and pushed toward the light of God or does the burden that's on us push us toward the darkness? And for my friend, it was pushing him over there. He's a believer. My heart broke for him. I was crushed when I heard it. One more time, Henry. No. And this one, quote, follows on from the one that's in the front of your bulletin. He says, physical, mental, or emotional pain lived under the blessing is experienced in ways radically different from physical, mental, or emotional pain lived under the curse. It's not easy, he says. But what seemed intolerable when, when all of this is lived under the blessing, what seemed intolerable becomes a challenge. What seemed a reason for depression becomes a source of purification. What seemed punishment becomes a gentle pruning. What seemed rejection becomes a way to a deeper communication. End quote. I've been listening to a book that outlines the lives of several ascetics and mystics and those who uh, in the uh, three, four, five hundreds AD were doing their best to follow Christ and the way they disciplined their lives in poverty. One guy only ate lettuce all of his adult life. And I thought, this is just craziness. <laughs> but such was their 
passionate commitment to Jesus. And through all of that commitment and sacrifice, they never thought they were measuring up enough. They never thought that they deserved any of it, any of the grace of God. And they saw all of that burden as a mercy and an opportunity to be the light of Christ in the world. I am challenged. I have someone in my life, none of you know her. She always insists on expressing gratitude uh, no matter how bad life gets. You know people like this. If I were to say to her, hey, I'm really sorry you fell and cracked your head and broke your hip and lost your wallet and poked your eye out and had to lie there in the rain waiting for the ambulance, she would say, well, at least I didn't hurt my knees. I'm grateful for that. Drives me nuts sometimes. I want her to admit, can't you just admit life's hard, it's bad, a lot of bad stuff going on, more bad stuff to come, come on. The Psalms are full of lamenting. You need to be realistic about life. And she always insists on telling me, no, I am a blessed, beloved child of God. Okay. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption, sons, heirs. So you're no longer a slave, but an heir. And if a child, if an heir, an heir through God. Thanks be to God.